eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, a science quiz. Do dolphins really have a language? Does lightning ever strike twice? Listen and find out. Then, the chief of protocol for President Obama explains the importance of diplomacy for everyone and how it keeps presidents out of trouble. Men cross their legs and often show the bottom of their shoe, but that's creating great offense in many, many countries. President Obama had very, very long legs. And I would have to say, Mr. President, before you go out there, what are we going to do? And he would say, both feet on the floor, like, yes. Then, simple ways to work better in the kitchen. And luck, serendipity. Serendipity to me is really that kind of unexpected good luck that results from these kind of unplanned moments. So it's not enough to just see something unexpected, but we have to connect the dots, we have to do something with it to really then turn out into a kind of lucky coincidence. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often, once-in-a-while, try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now. And support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hello. Welcome to Something You Should Know. I hope I sound normal to you. I don't sound normal to me because I've got something going on with my ear, which the doctor says will clear up in a couple of days, but I can't hear very well out of my left ear. So I don't sound normal to me in my own head, but hopefully I sound okay to you. We start today with a science quiz. See if you believe these things to be true. Lightning never strikes twice in the same place. Well, actually, it does. In fact, in one storm, the Empire State Building was struck three different times. There is no gravity on the International Space Station. That is also wrong. 
there is only a little less gravity there than here on Earth. Astronauts experience weightlessness because they are in a constant state of freefall. Dolphins have their own language. Everybody knows that, except it's not true. Scientists have studied this and have never found a language. Toilets drain counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. That's not right either. The Coriolis effect makes cyclones spin different ways above and below the equator, but that has no effect on something as small as a toilet. The Earth is warmer in the summer because it's closer to the sun. Well, actually, the Earth is closer to the sun in January. The seasons are determined by the Earth's tilt towards the sun. And that is something you should know. You are about to hear some pretty cool behind-the-scenes stories from the White House in this next segment. But the actual point of this segment, and there's always a point to these segments, is to talk about the importance of diplomacy and protocol, which some might say we're seeing quite a lack of recently. When you hear the words diplomacy or protocol, you likely think of high government officials and how they behave, generally in very polite and civil ways and according to custom. But we all use diplomacy and protocols in our lives. It's often what allows us to get through life with other people. We generally and usually know what to expect from them and they from us so that we can all carry on. Interestingly, though, diplomacy and protocol is a lot more than that, as you're about to hear from Capricia Penevik Marshall. She was social secretary to Bill and Hillary Clinton for eight years, and more recently, chief of protocol under the Obama administration. She is now president of Global Engagement Strategies, which advises international public and private clients on issues relating to diplomacy. And she's author of the book, Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy and How to Make it Work for You. Hi, Capricia. Welcome. Hi, Mike. I'm so pleased to join you. So, based on your background, it would seem there are few other people in the world that know more about this topic than you do. So, what is diplomacy and protocol from your point of view, and and why do you think it's important? Then, obviously, you've dedicated your career to it. Oh, well, thank you for that question. Um, Diplomacy and protocol are the tenets that I lived by while I served as chief of protocol for President Obama and Secretary Clinton. Um, You know, I I consider protocol one of those superpowers. Uh, The details really matter. There are hidden micro moves that give you a, a real major impact. Protocol, we would present it as a roadmap for your professional social and cultural engagements, uh, making sure that you avoid those potholes. Okay, well, I get that it matters a lot when you're world leaders, but how does it play out in everyday life? Why is it even important? My motto has always been, why wing it? You know, be prepared, be professional when you show up either in a personal interview or um, now perhaps one that is virtual. For instance, you know, when you give a when you give a toast, make sure that you know to stand, raise your glass, look at the person in the eye, 
don't use water. Um, know these days that we're probably not going to be clinking um, due to our social distancing, but that you should offer that, that movement. Make sure that you thank the host. I'm very appreciative of people who do those little things that you just talked about, I, but I think there's a sense that it's lost on a lot of people that we live in a more informal world and that a lot of this stuff really isn't important. Oh, Mike, it is ever so important. And let me tell you that today in particular, it is so very important. What protocol does is it creates clarity. It creates direction. And today there is a lot of confusion and a lot of noise out there. And so people are looking for direction. They, they want those rules. They want to know how am I supposed to interact in this new environment. It almost seems as if what you're calling protocol or diplomacy is in large part just etiquette, just common sense, just, you know, do the right thing. Well, it is in large measure, but um, protocol is is coupled with, it is its fine cousin is etiquette. Uh, but beyond that, protocol has all of the, the preparation tools as well wrapped into it. Um, I always carried with me my Mary Poppins bag whenever I traveled with President Obama on, on foreign travels. And it had everything in there for all of those what ifs. But when you plan, you are influencing. You are also optimistic. Um, it helps when things, are, things don't go quite the way that you want them to. You have that framework. Let me tell you, when I was about to take on my position as chief of protocol, we had what was called murder boards. And there was a group of individuals who would surround me in a room and pepper me with questions, one after the other, after the other, after the other, so that I was prepared for my Senate confirmation hearing. And I didn't do just one, I did four. And I was fully prepared for any question that was going to come my way. So preparation is really key in protocol as well. In addition, in particularly today, knowing your cultural IQ. Who am I? What am I conveying to you? And what do you what should I know about you is so very, very important. Listen, listen well, take some pauses in the conversation because people love to fill the pauses and they give you information about themselves. They fill that empty space. I launched a wonderful program when I was in protocol called the Diplomatic Partnerships Division. And it was intended for us as Americans uh, in, the, in government service to get to know the diplomatic corps from all over the world better. Uh, we wanted to know the best of the best of the people that were sent from every nation here to represent their country. And so we wanted them to know who we were, who, who we are as Americans. And we took them all over the country on a program called Experience America, from Chicago to New Orleans to Atlanta. Oh gosh, and our, my favorite to Alaska. My favorite part of the trip was when we were on a train ride. We had just left Glacier Bay and the Chilean ambassador grabbed this guitar and he started playing uh, with backup from the Croatian ambassador, Peruvian ambassador and Japanese ambassador. I can't get no satisfaction. Nothing brings people together like the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. Since you were like right in the thick of it, and I, I didn't know that chief of protocol required Senate confirmation, I, I, uh, that must have been a harrowing experience. 
Oh, yes, it is. And the reason why you are Senate confirmed is that you literally stand in the place of the president when greeting uh, chiefs of state and heads of government, whether they are kings and queens or presidents and prime ministers. Um, one of my favorite parts of my position was standing at Air Andrews Air Force Base when a leader arrived in a plane and they would begin to descend uh, their staircase. And I stood there and I would say, extend my hand and say, on behalf of the United States, welcome, welcome to our nation. It was a wonderful moment uh, to shake their hands. I still get a little bit of a shiver when I say it now. Um, and so you go through Senate confirmation so you can receive the rank of ambassador because a leader will want to greet someone who is of a higher rank. So there must have been some really good juicy stories of things that went awry or things that you can share that because uh, we have to have some of that. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, you know, it is also the beauty of protocol is that when you have a really good plan, you are prepared for what I call oopsie doodles, those things that just don't go quite right. Uh, there's one that if you Google it, you see it right away, Capricia Marshall Fall, uh, during, the, <laughs> during the state visit of President Calderon and Mrs. Savala, um, I am half Mexican and half Croatian. And so my entire Mexican family was watching because this is the president of Mexico who was arriving for the state dinner. I walked out of the North Portico door leading President and Mrs. Obama, and I was about to take my position in my long pink gown and regrettably very high, very thin-heeled shoes, which got caught in a divot in the marble on the North Portico, and down I went. Now, I will tell you, Mike, I have a pretty strong core. I do a little P90X. And so I jumped as I knew I was going to fall forward. I sort of jumped to the first step, went down and came back up. All the while, Mrs. Obama yelling out to the 100 person International Press Corps, don't take that picture. And President Obama stepping in to try to help me. It was a moment that will live with me forever. And <laughs> at that moment, I said to myself, okay, now what do I do? And I thought, carry on with the job at hand, just keep going forward. So I held on to my shoes, walked down the staircase, greeted President Calderon and made the introductions. And as soon as everyone was out of sight, collapsed in a chair saying, I can't believe that just happened. <laughs> a moment that will live with me forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks to the internet, it will outlive you. <laughs> We're talking about diplomacy and protocol, and I'm speaking with Capricia Penevik Marshall. She was social secretary for the Clintons for eight years, chief of protocol under President Obama and author of the book, Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy and How to Make It Work for You. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear 
with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, Capricia, when dignitaries and foreign leaders come to the White House, do you, as the chief of protocol, do you get their, like a rock star has a writer to their contract when they, they do a concert of the, you know, the kind of liquor they want and the, the, the kind of pillow they want. Uh, do they do that? Oh, you bet they do. Absolutely. And we do the same. We send our list as well. And there are many, many discussions that take place from the moment the visit is put on the scheduling uh, books, we begin to have our exchange of notes, uh, likes, dislikes. Uh, we begin to research so much about that leader because you want that visit to be very, very respectful. Uh, they assist you in helping them understand their culture. So if there is a particular color or flower or food that would cause offense, they let you know well in advance. Do they have allergies and making sure that we are not uh, serving them something that they might have a reaction to, that would be bad. Um, so we share all of those details well in advance to avoid any kind of mishap uh, during the visit. And so what's the strangest request you ever got? The strangest request, well, it wasn't one that I actually received, but one that one of my predecessors uh, did receive was whether or not they could bring live monkeys into the country because it's a delicacy in their country. And the monkeys needed to be live because um, of the way that they serve it. And um, I will just tell you that that request was denied, um, that they would have to wait to return back to their country for the live monkey delicacy. Sometimes at Blair House, which is the president's guest house, and the chief of protocol would oversee uh, the president's guest house, there were interesting sleeping arrangements um, when leaders would stay there. Oftentimes their guards would sleep outside their, their doorways, even though we had plenty of beds for them to sleep. Um, they, we would find them there. Uh, there's, golly, there's so many other interesting, fun stories that um, come to mind that I could go on and on. But I know, Mike, you don't want me to do that. <laughs> oh, but but I do. I, 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 I'd love, well, I'd love to hear just one or two more just to get a little flavor of what, what goes on. 
well, this isn't really something that had gone wrong um, or, or a special interesting request, but another fun story that really comes to mind is um, the exchange of, of gifts. Gifts are a wonderful tradition in protocol. You know, you should really drive home the point of the gift. That's what I, I used as um, our, our focus when we decided which gifts to suggest to President and Mrs. Obama that they might want to bring um, with them on a foreign visit or to give when a leader came to our country. You know, it's one of the greatest soft power tools that we have, but creating the gifts and, and then seeing what we were going to receive was always a great deal of fun. And one of my fondest gift stories was when President Obama was invited by Her Majesty the Queen for a state visit. And just entering the doors of Buckingham Palace is extraordinary. And seeing Her Majesty move us all along, she is really her own chief of protocol. She keeps time, she looks at her watch, she holds on to that bag I learned. I tried to take it from her once, not deliberately, but in a way to just offer a service. And I was told, do not touch the bag. And I asked, why? What's in the bag? We don't know what's in the bag, but we don't touch the bag. <laughs> and okay, I'll stay away from the bag. <laughs> but we had this wonderful moment of the gift exchange. And you know, a few years earlier, there was a, a, a gift that was given that had created a lot of attention in the UK, an iPod for Her Majesty. Um, that I, was, I wasn't around for at that time. but So I had to put extra effort into thinking through what will the Americans bring for Her Majesty that would not divert attention away from the visit, but would actually create a stronger bond in this special relationship. And so at the time when we're supposed to present the gifts and Her Majesty likes this, uh, leader to leader, this is a very big part of the visit. She walked through the door with President Obama, approached the table, and she looked down at the red portfolio that we had created of memorabilia from her father's last visit to the United States. Now, she, we knew, we learned through lots of research that she revered her father, just adored him. And we found original menus and note cards and invitations. And so we created this wonderful, beautiful portfolio of, of, of mementos from his last visit. And as she looked page to page, I could say that I think I saw a little glisten in her eye as she was looking at these mementos. And I looked up at the president and he was so happy. He's like, okay, job well done. And then we moved on to the gift for Prince Philip. And um, we learned that he loved to race carriage ponies. And so we went to two artisans, one in Colorado, one in Ohio, to create bits and shanks for his carriage ponies. And on the ends of those, we soldered the president's seal. Well, he came over and he picked it up and he looked and he said, I'm not sure, these might be a little heavy for my pony's jaws. Well, her majesty said, well, I just don't think that's the case. And so she called over this really tall man who's the head of the horses, I think, because he picked them up and he looked and goes, oh no, this is fine workmanship, fine workmanship indeed. And her majesty looked at Prince Philip and said, I told you, Philip. And so saving me any embarrassment and certainly making the gift uh, one that was really, really special. So gifts matter. They really matter as a part of our exchange, as a part of protocol, and a part of building the relationship between two leaders.
These rules of protocol that you have when you're dealing with world leaders and very high-level government people, I understand that, that all these details are really important to you because this is your job, but do, do those people care if a fork is out of place or somebody's tie is crooked or their shoe's untied or, or you didn't hold the door for this person? Or, do people, do they really care? Oh, yes, they care. They care greatly. And in my line of work, I had to make sure that the flag was hung appropriately, that the I did six eyes on everything, confirming that spelling of names was absolutely appropriate, um, that the table was um, appropriately set, because it also just shows you care. And why wing it? Why wing it in government, your professional life, or at home? You know, know, know the rules and or know these tools, these very special tools that you can use to your great advantage. Oftentimes, using the tools pivots the power to your advantage, whether you're in government or a business negotiation or even, you know, with uh, as you try to tell your child, I have a, a young son, when they're interviewing with a future employer, you know, using these tools can be ever so helpful. It just makes sure that all is defined the appropriate way. It leaves nothing up for chance. You know, it's interesting that I, I, I've taken from what you've said is that, you know, in government, the rules are pretty much set in stone at that at the level you worked in. But if you have want to set your own protocol around your own house or your own workplace or whatever, you can kind of make it up as you go along. It's just that you have to communicate it. You have to tell people, this is how we're going to do it at my house. And, and you know, in a nice way, but so you take your shoes off when you get here or you wash your hands or whatever. You can do whatever you want, but you have to tell people. That's exactly right. Mike, you really hit the nail on the head. It is setting expectations, communicating in advance all of the preparations, everything that you you put in place. You want to make sure that someone knows that you, you went to a lot of trouble also to make sure that this visit, this um, negotiation, maybe client exchange, whatever it might be, that you went to a great deal of trouble to set these parameters for them and so that they could feel uh, welcome in your home, um, that they could, what to expect if they step into your office, um, whatever that might be. Uh, clarity of, of expectations is really important. And, you know, I also say that language is so, so important. Be specific in what you in the language that you are using, whether it's on an invitation or verbally. Confirm understanding, in particularly when you're talking to someone from another country. We often use jargon that is confusing, and um, someone may walk away thinking that they know what you intended, but they don't quite know what you intended. So confirm understanding and then repeat it again. I've always wondered what happens when at, at high government levels when protocols collide. When I mean I don't well the monkey story was a good example of you know we just we don't typically eat monkey brains here, but you know when there's just maybe something less dramatic you know I don't know what it would be I mean, so some country maybe they belch after dinner and at the White House we kind of frown on that so what what happens when those kind of protocols collide? 
Well, it is interesting. Um, when you travel, you have to really make sure that you check out how some gestures might be perceived in other countries. Um, sometimes too much of a smile can indicate that you are a bit um, bewildered or someone who isn't all that smart. The V sign here, we use the V sign as victory. Um, regrettably, President Bush had used it with uh, the palm facing out in uh, on one of his visits and it's as bad as uh, one of the bad signals we use with one of our middle fingers here. Put, sitting on a, on a chair and cr men cross their legs and often show the bottom of their shoe. They don't realize it, but that's creating great offense in many, many countries. I would constantly, President Obama had very, very long legs. And so crossing his legs was something that just came natural to him. And I would have to say, Mr. President, before you go out there, what are we going to do? And he would say, both feet on the floor. I'm like, yes, absolutely. Because we really don't want to show the bottom of our shoe. And in countries like Japan, really large gestures, which I have to watch myself with because I, I like to you know wave my hands around a little bit um, or take it. People are taken aback by that. It makes them uncomfortable. So the protocol defaults to the host, right? I mean, so, so y y in other words, y you didn't advise the Obamas to watch their gestures with the Japanese prime minister at the White House because you're at home, right? That's absolutely right, Mike. When you are at home, when it is, is the rules that govern are those of the host country. I would imagine if you were the president of the United States and you have someone like you running interference for all these details to make sure every little thing is right, that when they leave office, <laughs> it must be really hard not to have you around. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm quite lucky in that I have stayed quite close to both President Clinton and President Obama, the two presidents that I have given advice and guidance to over the years. And so um, on occasion, even after what I, I after I left office, I get a ring that says, we're about to do X, Y, Z. What do you think, Capricia? What should we be doing here? And I'm incredibly flattered with the call and uh, go right back into service all over again. Can you give me, give all of us one more little kind of peek behind the curtain of what goes on at the White House that most people never see that that would really be kind of fascinating to know? Day of inauguration, when President-elect George Bush arrived to the White House to be greeted by President and Mrs. Clinton. There is a tradition in our country where the current sitting president invites the president-elect to the White House, to the Blue Room, to have a coffee. It's not a long visit, it's a short visit, but is an extraordinary exchange of philosophy and the way that our country is run. I, I consider myself incredibly, incredibly privileged to have witnessed this uh, up close and personal. And I was one of two staff people still left at the White House at this time. So when President-elect and Mrs. Bush arrived to the White House and were greeted, and this was a tough election, you gotta remember. President um, Clinton had fought hard for Vice President Gore to become president, and it didn't turn out in his favor. 
And so there were some raw emotions still that were at play when President-elect Bush showed up at the White House that day. And, and you could feel it. You could really feel it in the air. President Clinton has a very special manner about him. He makes anyone feel comfortable and welcomed. He just sort of gives you always that bear hug of a welcome. And so after the coffee, it is my duty, it was my duty to escort everyone to the motorcade that would then drive them up to Capitol Hill where the, the actual oath of office would take place. And it was now the was now President Clinton and President-elect Bush's time to get into the motorcade. And President Clinton turned to President-elect Bush, took him by the shoulders, adjusted his jacket, tapped him on the back, and he said, come on, let's go do this. And President-elect Bush looked up at him with a, a look in his eyes and not saying anything, but you, you saw that he said, don't worry, I've got this. And within that moment, there was a change in power without a sword being raised, without a yell being shouted. It was one of the most extraordinary moments I'd ever witnessed. Wow, that's real history. And, and you were right there. And probably uh, a good story like that is a good place to stop. So we will stop here. Capricia Penovic Marshall has been my guest. She's the former social secretary to Bill and Hillary Clinton. She was the chief of protocol for the Obama administration. And she is currently president of Global Engagement Strategies, which advises international public and private clients on issues related to diplomacy. Her book is called Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy and How to Make It Work for You. You'll find a link to her book in the show notes. Thank you, Capricia. Thank you so much. I really appreciated this, Mike. This is great. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you realize it or not, luck plays a big role in so much of your life. Think about it. One chance meeting, one little decision, one piece of information, the fact that you turned left instead of turned right, 
All of these things can change your life forever, no matter how well you've got your life all planned out. And so when you understand that this does happen and understand how it happens, you can actually create more good luck for yourself and less bad luck. Christian Bush has studied this. Christian is the director of the Global Economy Program at New York University's Center for Global Affairs, and he is author of the book The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. Hi, Christian. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. So let's first define what you mean by luck, because there's the kind of luck like, oh, I won the lottery kind of luck, which is really just random chance. Then there's the luck I think you're talking about, and there may be other kinds of luck. So let's focus in on what is luck for the purpose of this conversation. That's a great question, because that's actually what I'm most fascinated by in terms of that if we look at this kind of blind luck that we usually associate luck with, so, you know, being born into a loving family or uh, these kind of uh, things, it's essentially something that we didn't work for. Uh, but the luck that I'm really excited about is that luck, that, that the, the smart luck that we really do something about. So serendipity to me is really that kind of unexpected good luck that results from these kind of unplanned moments but then we, we make some kind of proactive decision that leads us to some kind of positive outcome. So it's like, it's not enough to just, you know, in the case of um, uh, interesting inventions or so, it's not enough to just see something unexpected, but we have to connect the dots. We have to do something with it uh, to really then turn out into a kind of lucky coincidence. And so what are some of those things in a, that show up in life? Yeah, I think everybody can imagine, you know, the chance encounter with somebody that that changes your life kind of thing. But what are some of the other things in life that can lead to the kind of luck you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, we, we can see it in, in every area. So, for example, when you think about companies, um, there's this one Chinese company. Um, and they, uh, you know, they produce washing machines and refrigerators and they got calls one day and farmers told them, hey, we're trying to wash our potatoes on the washing machine and it doesn't seem to work. And so what would we usually do? We would say, well, you know, don't wash your potatoes in the washing machine. It's unexpected that you're doing this, but you know what? Like, just don't do it. So we would either ignore it or we would say, okay, don't, um, don't do it. Uh, they did the opposite. They said, okay, well, this is interesting that they do this. Uh, and we know that there are a lot of farmers out there. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and essentially make it a potato washing machine? And so that's how the potato washing machine emerged. It was not planned, but it was something where someone saw kind of serendipity trigger, something unexpected, but then they connected the dots to like a much larger uh, market out there. And so we know that around, you know, 50-ish percent of inventions happen that way. Um, we know that, you know, you mentioned earlier, a lot of times we might have met our life partner that way. We might have met our co-founder that way, where it's not only about running into someone and, and someone telling us about something, but it's about doing something with it and connecting the dots to something else that, that we've been working on. And so it's really that kind of smart luck um, that is really about proactive decisions and proactively acting on it rather than just kind of having it ha happen to us. So how do you zero in on the ones that have potential or do you just have to be open to everything so the potato washing machine turned out to be a good idea but there's a lot of ideas that probably come like or problems that get expressed like you know we're having trouble washing our you know fill in the blank there uh that that isn't going to turn into anything and so how do you separate or how do you filter out the good ones from the bad ones 
That's a great question because that's also something I've seen that particularly with entrepreneurs that sometimes they get distracted by all the opportunity that could be out there. Um, and so one of the things that has come out of our research, what some of the most successful um, uh, people, both you know, social entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, um, CEOs and others um, tend to do is they tend to have a certain sense of direction. So they might have an idea of, okay, in the next couple of months, I want to approximately do X, Y, Z. And then these things have to fit into this. But also by having an appreciation for the unexpected, it allows them to connect the dots. So if you look at someone like Paul Polman, for example, at Unilever, like he would always have this kind of bigger principle or bigger notion that he wanted to somehow help people uh, help themselves and, and develop something on their own. So now if I come to him and I tell him about something, he would be like, oh, okay, this is this is unexpected, but it relates to my purpose or it doesn't. So 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 one way is really kind of that like sense of direction or a basic principle or curiosity. Um, but also then another one that, that some companies, for example, have been doing is to set up things like brain trusts or other ways where essentially you come up with an idea or come up with something that might make sense. And then people just informally say, okay, this seems to make sense. It doesn't seem to make sense. And I think in our own relationships, a lot of times what we see is that someone who seems to be having a lot of these kind of lucky coincidences um, might have a partner who reflects on with them to, on it and says, okay, hey, this is this is valuable to follow up on and, and, and this isn't. And really kind of this idea of really linking it to a kind of broader journey rather than being distracted by it. Those people who have that ability, it seems, and I, I think everybody knows somebody that, that just things just seem to go their way. Opportunity just seems to fall into their lap. Are these typically the kind of people you're talking about and we just don't see the serendipity going on? Or are these two different kinds of people? That's most probably the kind of person. If if that's the kind of person where exactly like people would say, oh, that person is a bit luckier than others, even though they seem to be in a very similar context or a very similar situation. It's those kind of people where a lot of times, and it's interesting because that is actually um, one of the things that I've been most excited about trying to understand what are the patterns behind those kind of people? What what do we see emerging? So for example, if you take someone like Ollie Barrett in London, who is a wonderful person um, who's in the education sector and he's an entrepreneur. And one thing that he does is just a very small thing that he does differently than other people. But when he goes to an event and you know this dreaded question of what do you do, right? Where usually we would just say, oh, I'm working on X, Y, Z he essentially sets hooks. So he would not only be like, okay, I'm an education entrepreneur, but he would be like, oh, hey, I'm currently working in education, but I've recently started exploring philosophy. And what I'm really excited is connecting people and ideas. And so what he does here is he gives you three potential entry points where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I also wanted to look a bit more into how we can integrate philosophy into XYZ or how we can connect people differently, whatever it is. It might then seem like a positive coincidence that, that he met that person there. But what he did was he met the same person you and I might have met but he just uh, he, he just connected the dots differently with that person yeah it, it sounds like what he does is he kind of opens the door up gives people an opportunity to connect and then pretty much leaves it to them to do so or not but we've been talking a lot about you know businessy kind of things can we talk a little more about how serendipity and the kind of luck that you're talking about how it works on a more personal individual level that's a great question because that's also something. So if we take the example of how I met my previous uh, partner in terms of, you know, it's that kind of situation where I am sitting in a coffee shop 
um, and I am on my laptop, she's on her laptop, and we somehow sense, okay, there could be some kind of uh, thing, and you know, unexpectedly the coffee kind of falls down, we get into a conversation, and what might have a lot of, what might happen a lot of times now, of course, is that we leave it at this, even though we sense kind of some kind of direction, uh, some kind of connection. Um, in our case, fortunately, you know, we got to talk about that coffee, then we realized, oh my God, there's a couple of overlaps we have in terms of the, the interests we've been exploring, and then essentially we followed up on this and, and became partners. And so it's really that kind of in a way, how do we have that unexpected thing like a coffee falling down? And, and how do we then connect the dots to something um, in terms of the common overlaps? But it's really the day-to-day -day where a lot of things uh, come to us very serendipitously, but only if we're, if we're seeing them. And I think there's a lot of studies, for example, on, on luck in general that, that illustrate that. So, for example, um, there's one study where they took one person who self-identifies as very lucky and one person who self-identifies as very unlucky. And essentially they told them, okay, walk down the street, go into the coffee shop, sit next to the, the counter, grab your coffee, and that's it. What they didn't tell them is that there would be hidden cameras across the street, that there would be a five pound note in front of the coffee shop, and that at that table, there would be this super successful businessman who can make, make big ideas happen. And so um, the lucky person uh, walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, has a nice conversation with barista, sits next to the businessman because that's the table that's there, has a nice conversation, that's it. Now, the unlucky person goes down the street, steps over the five-pound note, goes inside, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, and that's it. Now, at the end of the day, they ask both people, so how was your day? And, you know, the, the, the lucky person says, well, it was amazing. You know, I, I, I had two wonderful conversations. Uh, I found money in the streets and we don't know if an opportunity came out of it, but it wouldn't be unexpected, right? If the businessman could have helped him with something. Um, now, the unlucky person only says, well, nothing really happened. And, you know, that, that is kind of like when it comes to luck itself and with serendipity, where, you, where we have this additional element of really kind of working on it. And like maybe if the businessman would have said something like, oh, I've been working on X, Y, Z, and we would have connected this to something we've been working on, um, that, that kind of thing would happen. But it's really this kind of idea that in a way, we we need to see the unexpected and then in and then in a way do something with it it would almost seem though that the, like if you look at this too closely like the magic goes away you know like the, the serendipity happens because it's just kind of circumstance happenstance if you if you dissect it maybe it it doesn't work it's, it's fascinating because it's it, that is what I find the beauty in it, that in a way it's about finding meaning in accidents, finding meaning in the unexpected. And in a way, by definition, we can't know what the outcome is. So by definition, we can't really take the magic away because even though I have a lot of serendipity, like every day I have serendipity uh, happen because, you know, I, I, I talk with a lot of people. I, I kind of engage people in different ways and, and so on. But um, uh, I never know what the potential outcome could be. So the magic is always there. But actually, by, by, in a way, training the mind in a certain way and, and, and kind of really developing that muscle for the unexpected, I, I kind of, as someone, you know, I, I come from Germany and, and, and without wanting to put any stereotypes on it, I'm someone who loves planning in, in my heart, right? And, and so to me, ambiguity and uncertainty usually would be something that would be an anxiety enhancing. It would be something where it would be like, oh, my God, um, th this is something that, that, that I try to avoid. 
But but since I've been in this kind of more serendipity mindset, in a way, uncertainty and ambiguity become something more joyful that I actually can look forward to because I know that I can turn it into something positive. And so it's really that kind of um, idea of, in a way, keeping the magic, but also at the same time, in a way, turning what could be anxiety into a bit more of an enthusiasm for life. And being honest with you, this is really something that in my work, so I've been doing a lot of work, especially in very low income contexts, especially uh, in Kenya and and, and South Africa and, and other uh, contexts, um, uh, particular contexts within those countries. And one thing that I've seen is that when people kind of take on like that kind of mindset, it does something. It just does something in terms of how we take control. We take more control of life rather than feeling, oh, my God, I, I feel very powerless. And I think especially at moments like at the moment, it just gives us a bit of power back because I think a lot of us are in this kind of illusion of control that we assume, yeah, I can plan my life out and I can do X, Y, Z. But actually then something like COVID happens and, you know, everything is kind of completely different. And so I've just seen in my work that this is something that gives a lot of meaning and, and purpose to, to people because it gets rid of the illusion of control and really says, let's try to control what we can, which is, is, is the process of it, not the outcome, but the process. So it seems from what you're saying is that a lot of this is really just being open to it leaving the door open, keeping your eye out for opportunities because, and being aware of the fact that serendipity does happen. It happens all the time. And so if you're open to it, it will happen rather than take the the philosophy of I'm going to plan my life out and just live my plan. It's interesting because um, I had a conversation just yesterday with a wonderful person who I would consider kind of a real serendipiter. And um, we talked about this idea that we're both very focused people and we're both very focused on getting things done. But we also kind of have this idea that we are we are open to the unexpected. So we're not we're not proactively seeking it out. And we're not proactively saying, oh, this has to happen all the time, but we are ready for when it happens. And so it's really something, you know, if you if you would see it as a kind of 80-20 type um, thing, I think that probably would be what it is in terms of um, that, that, you know, 80% of our lives we live in terms of, okay, we're planning these things out. We, we have our kind of goals and what we want to achieve this month and everything else. But then also we know that within that degree of keeping our eyes open, that is probably where most things will shift. That is where a brewery from one day to the other becomes a hand sanitizer organization or where a senior emergency service becomes a, a COVID service. And so it's, it's kind of those moments that, that just change everything. So if I want to tap into this, how do you start? What do you do? The, the core that I found helpful, apart from like the concrete kind of things, such as the way we ask questions, how we frame our minds, um, how we see opportunity in a crisis and, and so on, is really also that kind of general mindset of saying that we we need to expect the unexpected and, and start seeing it. And I think that kind of mindset shift in a way is, is, is really at the core of, of a lot of it. Um, but then also this kind of really placing bets and really saying, okay, I have this plan mapped out, but also maybe I spend uh, 5% of my time speaking with people in other areas just to figure out what could be there. Because some people might see something that I didn't. Well, I have said before that w when I look back on my life, I can point to certain events, certain people that I met, certain encounters that I had that really altered the course of my life and, and made life better. And, and I don't know that I was doing it very deliberately. So imagine if you did, imagine if you 
had an eye out for those kind of encounters, how great your life could be. Christian Bush has been my guest. He's the director of the Global Economy Program at New York University Center for Global Affairs. And he's author of the book, The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thank you, Christian. Thank you so much. I love all things about the kitchen. I love cooking. I love eating. I love everything about the whole kitchen experience. So I always enjoy when I come across things that tell you how to make life in the kitchen better. And here are some things from the experts at Epicurious.com that will make you a better, more efficient chef. First of all, buy the Chicken Thigh Family Pack. The chicken thighs are juicier, cheaper, and more flavorful than chicken breasts, which everybody's pretty much sick of anyway. Save the fat. Chicken fat is amazing stuff, whether you're frying onions in it, sautéing greens in it, or spreading it on toast. So after eating your roast chicken dinner, drain the now-cooled liquid fat into a plastic container and store it in the freezer. Season some of your vegetables with sugar. Carrots, squash, tomatoes, all these vegetables have a natural sweetness that's enhanced by just a tiny bit of sugar. Use a garbage bowl. You get a large bowl exclusively for things like eggshells, onion skins, and other trash, and it will keep your workspace much neater. Put a damp paper towel or kitchen towel under your cutting board. That way your board doesn't slip around as you chop. Always keep lemons in the fridge. They'll keep longer that way, so you'll always be able to add fresh lemon juice to everything from dressings to cocktails. Plus, you can use the squeezed rinds to clean and deodorize your wooden cutting boards. Buy a better ice cube tray. The cubes out of your ice dispenser are watering down your cocktails. Cubes made in silicone ice trays are denser and keep your drink of choice cold for hours. And toss your spices, especially the ground cumin. Ground spices die quickly, so give them a whiff, because if they don't smell like much, they're not going to taste like much either. And that is something you should know. Lately, there have been a lot of very positive, thoughtful, and kind reviews on Apple Podcasts about this podcast, and I appreciate that. If you have a moment, I'd appreciate your comments as well. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets, on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.